Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. All right. You can go ahead and have a seat. Any, uh, any favorite meal someone really feels like they need to share with the rest of us just to make our mouth water a little bit? Any favorite meals? Say that again. Sushi, steak, love it, put them together, that's a full meal, that's delicious. All right. Well, we are talking about neighboring today. We are in the middle of our uh, Rhythms of Life series where we're looking at the three rhythms of Waterstone, Transform, Neighbor, and Restore. Uh, And Larry kicked us off last week, and these are really the things that make our church tick. This is how we want to follow Jesus. This is who we want to be as a community. And as we get started with the Rhythm of Neighboring today, I would like to invite uh, Neil and Ash to the stage. Uh, They are longtime Waterstone members. They've been here for a number of years. And uh, we would just love for them to share a little bit about how they have made this rhythm of neighboring uh, a part of their life. So if you would, go ahead and welcome them to the stage, and then um, ah, you guys can share a little bit about your neighboring journey. Great. I'm Ash. I am actually on staff here as the early childhood coordinator, so I get the privilege of teaching our tiniest Waterstone kids God's big story from the Bible. It's pretty wonderful. Um, And another part of my job that I love is I get to lead the volunteer team for our kids' ministry uh, birth through kindergarten. And I am so proud of the team that we have built. I just have the best people to work with and develop. I see a lot of them out here today. Um, If you've ever thought that you'd like to, one time a month, serving kids, reach out to me. I would love to get to know you and bring you into our great team. So Neil and I have been attending Waterstone for four and a half years. And in that time, like you probably, we've heard a lot about neighboring and that rhythm and what that is. And about this time last year, uh, as we were kind of coming time to January and committing to different activities and filling out our calendar for the year, um, we decided that we wanted to set aside some time to actually practice the rhythm of neighboring. So I don't know if you can have a favorite rhythm, but (laughs) I have a favorite rhythm. It's the neighboring rhythm. And I remember when Ash and I sat down at the dining room table, got out our calendars, and we really wanted to put this particular rhythm into practice. We talked about it for so long, and it's one of the things that drew us to Waterstone. And as we looked at our calendar, we had to fit in all the things I know that are on your schedule, too. There's the basketball practices and chess club and football and all the activities. And it took that calendaring time, that almost date night-like calendaring time of what are the weeks, what are the days, and we basically settled on once a week, we're going to try to invite someone over to our house to share a meal. Usually ended up being a Friday or Saturday. And uh, it was one of the biggest highlights of our spring last year. Uh, We have three boys, nine, seven, and five. Nine, seven, and almost five. He thinks he's five. Um, And a small house. And you can imagine how that goes. But you know what? We we went for it anyways. We made it work. 
And there's always that moment when you have something on your calendar where you're like, I kind of wish I didn't have something <laughs> on my calendar tonight. And we felt that. That was a regular part of it. And we were always uh, just so shocked at the end of those nights as people left our house and went home and we'd wave to them from the doorstep. Um, we'd turn to each other and just say how refreshed we were from that, how, how much we enjoyed that, how much our kids enjoyed that. And we basically started with who are the people in our kids' lives right now, who are the kids the names of people and families that they talk about. We invited them first, and then we moved to our, our literal neighbors and just found um, people were often receptive to that invitation. One thing we did during these nights to make it just a little bit more of like a intentional space was we would pray before the meal, um, and we just would use that opportunity to pray a blessing over our friends and thank God for the gift of friendship and being together. Um, that part took a little bit of boldness and a little bit of tolerance for maybe an awkward beat, um, but it really added something special to those nights. Um, the language that we used was just to say, it's our tradition to pray before a meal, would that be okay with you? And so that was just a piece of those nights that invited people to experience a little bit of God's kingdom, we hope. Uh, so where did these adventures take us? Um, I have a few stories to share. Uh, one of them was not our finest moment. Um, not 10 minutes after our family friends had left, they have four boys and we had three. Um, so it was a fun evening. Not 10 minutes after they left, we found out from our firstborn that our middle child had mooned his friends and our guests, the children. Uh, and that goes exactly how you would think, that the firstborn reported the transgression made by the middle child. Uh, so we had, I had to call my friend and <laughs> say, we, we just found out this happened. We're so sorry. We don't condone this behavior. You know, this is so inappropriate. Um, so that, you know, that was early on, but we kept, we kept going. Kept going. We kept our chin up. Uh, <laughs> it couldn't get worse than that. So we felt we could continue yeah. the rhythm. So through, I think, um, the, this rhythm, I think the most beautiful part was that these relationships developed often into friendships, where now we've been back and forth many times, you know, dinner at your house, then dinner at ours, and dinner at yours, and um, with multiple families many times, and that's been really beautiful. Um, also, a lot of our friends have been able to experience God's kingdom um, through coming to VBS through coming to the Fall Festival, to most recently Blue Christmas. Um, a story about VBS that I love is uh, our friends, our kids' friends came. And if you've ever been to VBS, you know that there's a lot of Jesus really quick. <laughs> and uh, my son's friend turned to him on the first day of VBS and said, Jesus, who's Jesus? <laughs> And I just love that story, that opportunity to learn and experience about Jesus. And I think that um, a lot of those encounters probably wouldn't have happened mm -hmm. unless we had had 
shared those times together in our homes and developed uh, friendships. So uh, the last story I'll leave you with is one that I was not even prepared to tell because it occurred just this Thursday night. Uh, Sarah asked me if I would come up and share a few neighboring stories, and I said, sure, I'll do that. Um, that was earlier this week. And then Thursday night, I went to basketball practice, uh, took my son there, he was sitting on the sidelines, and one of my friends who um, has kind of been in this rhythm with us wanted to talk to me all about her growing interest in um, starting a relationship with God. And this was just a long conversation that we had on the sidelines of basketball. And she told me that she had actually started attending, um, she had gone to a church a couple of times around here, and that she felt that the pastor was speaking just only to her, both of those times. And um, I was able to share with her that I had been praying for her that she would experience God drawing near to her. And um, it was just really special. And I'll leave you guys with that story. And also just a little encouragement to send out a text, order pizza, let it be imperfect, but open. And I would say, get ready for joy. Awesome. Thank you, guys. <clears throat> The trouble with testimonies is everything you say after that is like not as good as that. So it's all down here from here, downhill from here. Um, so we can just uh, enjoy it. But thank you guys so much for just sharing the beauty of that story and the way that God moves through this rhythm of neighboring. When we talk about neighboring, um, it's exactly what Neil and Ash just shared. It's the way that we enter into relationship with people in our spheres of influence uh, to proclaim the good news of Jesus. It comes from our mission statement, which Larry just talked about. But our mission at Waterstone is to be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ to proclaim his kingdom, that's the neighboring rhythm, and demonstrate his love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor, which we'll talk about next week. That's our restore rhythm. But this idea of neighboring really comes down to the idea that we want to proclaim the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done in this world, that we live for others by proclaiming that good news. Now, if you're like me, this idea of proclaiming the good news is kind of an emotionally loaded idea. I think when we talk about evangelism or we talk about sharing the gospel, there can be part of us that we're not really quite sure how to engage with that rhythm. If we do have favorite rhythms, mine is probably transform and restore. Neighboring is something I struggle with, and I'm always a little hesitant around neighboring because, honestly, I've seen it done so poorly, and, and I'm always worried that I'll maybe add to people's baggage that they have. They're like religious trauma by things I might say inadvertently. And so I, th I think when we think of neighboring, we can kind of ha have these two ideas in our heads, and we oscillate between these two extremes, where one is that we're just, oh, I'm just just going to share the truth. I'm just going to get it out there. I'm just going to make sure people hear the truth. And so that way, if they are hit by a bus on the way home tonight, at least they heard the gospel. And then I can have a clean conscience, right? And so we just got to get it out there and, and make sure someone hears. And then other times I have this other approach where I'm like, hey, maybe if I just shovel my neighbor's driveway, they'll piece together on their own that Jesus is Lord and Savior of the universe, and I won't have to say anything at all. And just by like how little ice patches I leave on their driveway, they will know the truth of who God is, right? Amen, Amen right? Yeah. 
And so we just feel this like tension of, oh, what do I say? And, and what if I don't say the, wrong, the right thing? And so I'd just rather say nothing at all. But true story, the other day I was shoveling my driveway and I thought I should shovel my neighbor's driveway. They're going through a hard season and it's the way I could help them. And then as I'm shoveling my own driveway, I start thinking like, what if they take that the wrong way? What if they think I don't think they're strong enough to shovel their driveway? What if they're offended by, we can talk ourselves out of deeds of kindness even. And so we can get to this place where we're just afraid to say and proclaim anything at all because of the world we live in. And what if we hurt someone? What if we offend someone? What if they don't take it the right way? What if we screw it up? And so instead of proclaiming the truth about who God is and what he's done in our lives and in the world, we just don't say anything at all. And we just kind of hope that maybe people will piece it together if we live a good enough life. And I'm not opposed to that. But if we claim to be followers of Jesus, and I do think we have to, to recognize and reconcile with the fact that Jesus has called us to proclaim the good news of his kingdom. In fact, in every single gospel, it's recorded that Jesus calls his followers to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God. In every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just take a real quick look at, with me at the, those four gospels, and we're just going to pull out a couple of verses. In Matthew, this is the Great Commission at the end. These are the last words of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. He says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then the end of Mark's gospel, in similar, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And in Luke, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And in John 20, 21, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. To be a follower of Jesus is to proclaim the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done in our lives and in the world. And if we claim to be followers of Jesus, no matter what our hesitancy or aversion to proclamation is, we are called to faithfully proclaim the good news about who Jesus is. Whenever I talk about neighboring, this doesn't matter if this was back in my, my youth pastor days and I was talking to 16-year-olds or now as I do adult ministry and I talk to someone who's 60, it doesn't matter if it's over a coffee shop or in a class I teach. When I bring up the topic of neighboring, there are always two questions that come up or two kind of hesitations people feel. And it's, I don't know what to say, or what if I say the wrong thing, and I'm not sure how to say it. I'm not sure how to even enter that conversation. And, and so today, I would like to take a little bit of time and just address both of those things. What is it that Jesus has called us and commanded us to proclaim? And how do we go about proclaiming it so people can hear the good news, receive the good news, and give their lives to Jesus? And so we're going to start by looking at what it is we are called to proclaim. And we're going to go to the source. We're going to go straight to the lips of Jesus and hear what the gospel was that he proclaimed himself. Because if we start there, then maybe we'll have a better understanding of what it is we're supposed to say as we proclaim the gospel. So in Mark chapter 1, as Jesus is starting his ministry, it says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, 
The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, if you are like me, and maybe you grew up in the church, that gospel from Jesus' own lips probably sounds a little bit different than the gospel you have maybe heard throughout your life. I think in our evangelical American culture, most of the time the gospel sounds something like this. You are a sinner. Jesus died for you so that you can go to heaven when you die, and you don't have to go to hell. Anybody heard that gospel before? Okay, yeah, a few hands. Okay, less people than I thought, so this might be new for you. What we hear is that the gospel starts with us, that we are sinners, that Jesus has done something to save us, and that if we just repent and believe, we can get ourselves into heaven when we die. And the problem with that is it is true, but it is not the full picture of the gospel. It is not the gospel that Jesus preached when he walked in the earth. And in fact, that formula you will find nowhere in the gospels. And to me, that gospel that you're a sinner, you die, or Jesus died so that you can go to heaven, it feels a little bit like a bag of chips. Anyone bought a bag of chips recently and you're so excited to get, a bag of chips is like one of my main food groups. But every time I open it up, I am like distraught because there's less than half the bag full. Like what are they doing? I just want some chips and queso and I have to buy like four bags just to get my queso. That's what, yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's what we have done with the gospel is there is so much more to the gospel than we have maybe been told or we have maybe imagined. And it is so much deeper and more beautiful than just Jesus has died for you. And while that is a part of the gospel, it is not the full gospel. And so today to look at the, to maybe get the full bag of chips, let's unpack what Jesus says really phrase by phrase in just this one verse. We're going to look at the good news of God. We're going to look at the time has come and the kingdom of God and then what it means to repent and believe. So let's start with the good news. What does Jesus mean when he says that the good news has come, that, that he proclaimed the good news as he went through his ministry? And that's where we have to start because that's what we are called to proclaim. And so this idea of good news, in the original languages of the scripture, does anybody know what the, the original word is, good news? And feel free to shout it out if you know it. It's probably one that some of you are familiar with. Anyone know? Gospel, yes, exactly. It's the gospel. The good news is the gospel. And the original Greek word for gospel is euangelion. Now what's interesting about the word euangelion is that it is actually not a religious term in Jesus' day. It was actually a political term. A euangelion is the word that we get for evangelical or for evangelism. But in Jesus' day, it was actually a position held by a government official. People who proclaimed or, or uh, evangelized were people who were making pronouncements about the kingdom or empire of which they were a part. And so if a new emperor was born, then they would evangelize. They would share the euangelion, the good news that a new emperor had just been born. Or if there was victory in battle, then they would send out evangelists to the entire kingdom to proclaim the good news that Caesar had won a victory for Rome. That was actually the, the heart of what it meant to proclaim a euangelion. And this term is commandeered by Jesus. And what you see, we just came out of Christmas. What's fascinating is if you read the Christmas stories and, and you read what's happening where the angel comes to Mary and proclaims as an euangelion, as an evangelist, that the baby she will carry will be the son of God. And that his kingdom will never end. She is proclaiming, she is hearing the good news proclaimed to her by the angel. 
Or the angels, when they come to the shepherds, it, it tells us in Luke that they proclaimed the good news, the euangelion, that Jesus was the son of God who would take away the sins of the world, that would save his people from darkness. What's fascinating is so much of that language can be found in Roman propaganda. So, for instance, when Octavius Caesar, when he defeated Mark Antony, they sent evangelists, euangelions, out into the entire Roman world that said, the son of God, Octavius Caesar, has come to rescue his people and to bring victory over our enemies. You see, at its core, this idea of good news does not start with you are a sinner or even Jesus loves you. It doesn't start with you or me at all. The good news of the gospel is a proclamation about Jesus. And so the gospel always starts with Jesus and what he has done in the world. It is a pronouncement about his kingdom and his kingship. Which is why Jesus says that he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God. And so what does he mean when he says the kingdom of God? Well, that also, in the original languages, comes from a word called basile. And it's actually, in our language, it looks very much like a noun. It's like a place or, or maybe a country. A kingdom is, is something we think of that has borders and walls and, and rulers. And, and that kind of misses the idea because in the original language, it's actually more verb than noun. It's actually more active than passive. The idea of the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God is the place where God's rule, where his will is in effect. That the way God has designed the world comes into submission to God's will and where everything God has designed begins to operate the way that it's supposed to. That's the idea behind God's kingdom. It's not a place, it's a person and it's a people who live under God's rule and authority. I have my own kingdom my own place where I want everything to be just the way that I've designed it, where I want all things to be in accordance with my will, and it's called my garage. And no one is allowed to do things in my garage unless I give consent and say, this is okay for you. People do not bring things into my garage. They do not organize my tool. They're messed up just the way I like them. If you organize them, then that goes against, that is rebellion against my will. Oh, one time, an act of love from my wife and my mother-in-law was to organize my garage. Whew. Some of you, yeah, you guys, you know what I'm talking about. It was not according with my will. That's the idea of the kingdom. It is the place where God's rule and reign is in effect. His effective will is taking place, and it is people who are living in accordance with his will. And the question for us is then, what is God's kingdom like? What is his rule and his reign like? You see, because the kingdom of God is not a kingdom like any other kingdom. Jesus, the king of the kingdom of God, isn't like a typical king. He wasn't born to royalty in a palace, but to peasants in a cave. He wasn't born with lots of dominion and land and servants. He was born as a political refugee. He didn't lead an army against his enemy to conquer his kingdom. Instead, he taught love for enemies and died for them. You see, the kingdom of God does not look like any kingdom in this world. Jesus' kingdom is where the last are first and the first are last. His kingdom is the place where all our assumptions about what will lead to the good life are called into question. 
God's will is the place where the wealthy give to the poor, the powerful serve the weak, the lonely are placed in a family where the sinner is invited to the open table, where the leper is embraced, where the sick are healed, where the addicted are set free, and where the weapons of war are turned into farming tools. The kingdom of God is the place where all sin and death and evil have been conquered and vanquished and no longer have the last word in our lives because Jesus is king and reigns in his kingdom. And the good news about this place and about this king and his kingdom is that it has come near. Jesus says that this kingdom is not some far-off dream that we hope we get to when we die. It's not some far-off reality that we just have to, to strive hard enough to get to. It has come near in the person of Jesus and is available to anyone who would accept and receive that gift. It's said that the, the famous last words of the Buddha were, strive without ceasing. Meaning that if you want to get to heaven, you just have to keep trying harder and harder. But Jesus' last words were, it is finished. He has done all that is required to accomplish the kingdom. He is the one who has opened the invitation, made a way for us to be welcome in the kingdom of God. It's not about us striving to get to some place. It is about God drawing near to us in the kingdom and inviting us to the table and saying, you, sinner, are welcome here. And all we have to do to receive that invitation is Jesus says, repent and believe. If we repent and believe, then we are welcome into the kingdom. Now, I had this idea of repentance growing up as a kid that it just meant that I had to, to like stop doing bad things and, and think enough in my head that Jesus was God. And that if I did that, then that meant that I was getting into heaven. And if I stopped doing those things, then I would like start to question like, was I actually saved? And I had this idea that repentance had to be this thing that I continually did. And if you grew up in like southern evangelical culture, you know the culture where it's like, how many times do I have to get baptized before I'm good? But repentance isn't actually that at all. Repentance is a, a changing, a turning of our ways. When Jesus calls us to repent and believe, he's saying, turn away from the kingdom of this world and turn to my kingdom. Surrender your will to my will. The place of the kingdom, when we repent, is the place we say, God, it is not my will, it's not my wishes, it is your rule, your reign, and I submit myself to you. My daughter, she is three going on 13, um, and I love her so much, but she is like independent and strong and all the things we prayed for, but make parenting really challenging at times. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we were playing. She got some new, uh, like, kind of jungle gym equipment that's indoor that she can climb on. And she was climbing on a way where I was like, hey, I'm not sure that's the safest way for you to do this. And she was, like, jumping from that to the stairs. And I was like, hey, you're going to fall and hurt yourself, so, so don't do that. And she said, Dad, she, she actually she stomped her foot and said, Dad, I'm going to do what I want to do. I was like, whoa, hey, actually, time out. You don't get to do what you want to do. Dad's in charge, and, and we're going to do what Dad says, and I'm just trying to protect you. She goes, Dad, you're not in charge. I'm in charge. Whew. I was like, whoa. We're like 10 years away from when this is supposed to be happening. What are we doing? 
And then I, I couldn't even be mad at her because it was one of those moments and, and the Holy Spirit just like pinpricked my heart and said, do you see the mirror image of yourself? Do you see God saying, hey, don't do that, Paul. You are going to hurt yourself. And me stomping my foot and saying, no, God, I'm in charge. It's not your will. It's my will. I'll do what I want. You see, the kingdom of God is the place where we say it is not my will. Where we recognize Jesus' authority and kingship. And we say, God, you are in charge, not me. And I bend my will to you. You see, all the brokenness in our world, all of the sin and evil we see in the world and within ourselves is the place we have forgotten who's in charge. It's the place where we have lived in rebellion to God and said, not your way, but my way. And it always leads to brokenness. And the invitation of Jesus is to find healing, to return to the way things were originally intended to be, to put Jesus at the center of our lives. Repentance is saying, God, it's not my will with my sexuality, but yours. It's not my will with my money, but yours. It's not my will with my politics, but yours. It's not my will with my career, but yours. It's not my dreams and my hopes, it's yours. My life is yours, and I surrender myself to you. That is the invitation of the kingdom of God, available to all of us. It has come near. I love the way that Rich Viotis, he summarizes this idea of the gospel when he says this. The gospel is the good news that God's kingdom has come near in Jesus Christ. And through his life, death, resurrection, and enthronement. The powers of sin, death, and evil no longer have the last word. See, the gospel and the good news is deeper and more beautiful than we might have previously heard. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died not just to take you to heaven, but to bring heaven to you. That in Jesus, his kingdom advances, making all things new. And that all things are being restored and that death and evil have been conquered in Jesus' name. And that injustice will be righted. Death will cease. Sorrow will be no more. Winter will turn into spring. The oppressor will cease. The hungry shall be fed. The prisoner will go free. And the sinner shall be forgiven. That is the good news of the kingdom of God. And how do we proclaim that? How do we tell the world about this good news of Jesus reigning in the world? That it's not just some eternity we go to when we die, but that we can experience eternity now. I mean, what's the most effective way? We always have to be effective with everything we do. We have to be efficient. So is it, is it four spiritual laws? Is it a gospel track? Is it it's something we post on Facebook? Is it inviting our friends to church so that they can hear the gospel from, from a pastor who maybe has figured it out a little better than we have and we just pray and hope they don't say something that will offend our guest? Is it just like a billboard on the side of I-90 that says, hey, are you on the road to heaven or hell? And, and I think we all know that if you're, you're headed east to Nebraska, we know the answer to that question. <laughs> That was a little mean. <laughs> if you're from Nebraska, no offense, unless you're my buddy Josh. He's not laughing. <laughs> He's just sitting there like, I don't like you right now. All right. And what's the most effective way to share this good news? 
But I just want to finish our time today with a, a couple principles, a couple ways that we have tried to make it easier for us to understand how to proclaim good news. But, but here's the key idea. It's not actually about what you say. Proclamation always involves words and speaking. But, but it is more about how we live. We do not have to be afraid of, of making sure we say everything the exact right way. Instead, we should focus on how we live in the world and what proclamation looks like as individuals and as a community of people living under the rule and reign of God. And the three ways we break it down are, are pray, engage, and invite. Or sorry, excuse me, welcome. We changed that. Um, I forgot. So we start with prayer. And then this is what we mean when we say that we want to practice neighboring through prayer. We want to pray for our neighbors so they become a part of our lives and our hearts. You see, if Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and, and there are parables and stories of how much Jesus loves the lost, then we need to reflect that to the world. We need to live under his will, his rule, his reign, and reflect his will to the world. And we need to love the lost, and the way that happens is through prayer. There's a famous man named Dwight L. Moody. He's the founder of Moody Bible Institute, and he lived during the 19th century. He's one of the most prolific evangelists the world has ever known. But a, a practice that he kept daily and weekly is he had a list of 100 people that did not know Jesus that he prayed for, hoping that they would come into a relationship with him. By the time he died, 96 of those 100 people had given their lives to Jesus. The last four did so at his funeral, overwhelmed by the testimonies of his life. You see, prayer changes our hearts for the lost, but it also can change the trajectory and lives of the lost. And so we pray for our neighbors and bring them before the throne of God and ask him to act on their behalf, to do what he does, which is rescue us from the kingdoms of this world. There have been a lot of people over the years who have been really inspired by Moody's story and the way that he prayed so fervently and, and the success that he had. There are far fewer people who have continued to pray after the inspiration wore off. Do we believe that our prayers can change the outcomes of people's lives? Do we care for the lost enough to pray for them daily? Aside from prayer, we also proclaim the gospel to our neighbors through engaging with our neighbors. And when we engage with our neighbors, we want to engage them in meaningful conversation, looking to move our relationships from surface to serious to spiritual. We want to have conversations with people who don't know Jesus about who Jesus is. And it can be really easy for Christians, I think, to have this kind of ethos of, of retreat in the world. I mean, after all, if we're living in a place that's increasingly antagonistic toward God or increasingly frustrated with Christians, then, then why don't we just withdraw and go back to ourselves and our own communities? But Jesus has called us to engage and to engage the world with the good news of the kingdom. It's not an option for us to retreat and withdraw from the world. But here's just one principle, I think, that, that can kind of steer us and guide us as we talk about how to engage the world. And, and it's this. It's really simple. Focus on conversation, not condemnation. 
One of the most famous scriptures in all of the Bible is John 3.16. If you know it, would you just recite it right now for us? John 3.16. For God... Awesome. We got there at the end. It's always like, wait, 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 which part is that? And then we got there. We did it. Great. The verse following that, so God so loved the world that he sent his son so that we can have eternal life. The verse following that is John 3, 17, less well known but equally important. God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Here's the thing. If God did not send Jesus to condemn the world, I am positive he did not send you. (laughs) Twist of the knife. (laughs) See, we are so familiar with those stories that make us just cringe and our hearts cry out that I'm not like those people. We've seen what condemnation of the church can look like. But we, the people of God, have been called to to preach really Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That the good news is that because of Jesus, we do not have to face condemnation. That's not what we lead with in engaging our neighbors. See, and even in conversation with our neighbors, it's not always about telling them the right things to believe. If you look at Jesus' life, Jesus was asked over 183 questions in his life. He answered directly eight times. Jesus asked over 300 questions recorded in the Gospels. Do you maybe think that tells us something about this disposition, that it's not up to us, we don't have to have the right answers, we don't have to say the right things. Maybe a way we can engage our neighbors in spiritual conversations is just asking insightful questions, curious questions about what they believe and what's going on in their lives. You see, if the kingdom of God is the place where God's rule is in effect, Most people living outside of his kingdom will feel the gap between the life God has called us to and the life they're experiencing. And and do we have the the, insight to point those gaps out, to to recognize the spaces where people are rebelling and not just say, hey, you're in rebellion, you're a sinner, you're going to burn if you don't turn, but to say, like, what would Jesus do in that space? Where could Jesus meet people in the place of pain in their lives with love? How can we engage people with the gospel through conversation? But not only that, we want to welcome people into the kingdom of God. And when we talk about welcoming our neighbors to practice neighboring, we want to welcome our neighbors into everyday life where they can encounter and experience Jesus. If welcoming sounds unfamiliar, and I even slipped up earlier, we, we've often talked about pray, engage, invite. But we kind of moved away from that language because it feels a little bait and switch. Like, it feels like the whole purpose of neighboring is just to, to invite someone to church. And so just go make friends with people who don't know Jesus so that you can invite them to our church and so that they can go. One of the things I love about Ash and Neil's story is that the person that they had been neighboring that, that had this encounter and, and went to a church where they heard the gospel and it felt like it was preached just to them, they're not at Waterstone. And we love that. 
Because it's not about getting people into these doors. It's about getting people into the kingdom of heaven. That people can encounter Jesus wherever he is preached and proclaimed. It's not our job where people end up. It is our job to introduce them into spaces where they are welcome and can encounter the kingdom of God and the person of Jesus Christ. And so what if we focused as a community what if our focus was on radical hospitality and the culture of hostility? It goes without saying that our culture is incredibly hostile. I mean, I think that one of the reasons we have a loneliness epidemic is because people are terrified of one another. They're so worried that if they say the wrong thing, they'll be canceled. If they say the wrong thing, they'll offend someone. If something goes wrong in dynamics with friends, it doesn't matter how long they've known each other. That, that people will just cut them out of their lives? What if the church was the one place where people could experience radical hospitality, where we were not easily offended, where we just gave space for people to be in process? Here's just a, a few statistics about the loneliness in our culture. The number of people who say they have no friends has quadrupled since 1990. 54% of Americans re report feeling sometimes or always that no one truly knows them. 44% of Americans have zero close friends. What if the church was the place where those numbers began to reverse? What if we were a community that when you walked through those doors, we knew one another? where we were committed to radical hospitality, not with just people outside of our walls, but we said, we're not gonna allow someone to come into our church and not be known. And so we're gonna commit to one another, to going outside of our comfort zones or, or not sitting in the same seat every single week or actually getting up during the greeting time and going to someone we've never talked to before. What if we invited people to lunch after church so we could just know their stories and be a place of inclusion and welcome where people have been invited and welcomed to the table? You see, when you look at the life of Jesus, so much of his ministry, so much of the way that he changed the world was inviting people to a table. In fact, one of the, the biggest criticisms of Jesus that the religious leaders had is that who is this man that welcomes sinners and eats with them? See, we talk about the Lord's Supper and the, and the invitation that he had for his disciples there to remember him. But the Last Supper did not begin the last night of Jesus' life. It was the very beginning of his ministry. It was the core of what he did. He welcomed people to the table. No matter their background, no matter what they had done, no matter how they were characterized or labeled. And he said, you are welcome at my table. That's the invitation available to us. 